Hello and welcome everyone to our next episode of Voices of E-Learning. I'm your host, J.W. Marshall from MarketScale, and we are so glad that you found us today. Our guest on this episode is a returning guest from last year to give us an update on all things international ed tech. We have Michael Spencer, CEO of Global Expansion Strategies, on the show with us today. Michael, how are you doing? All is well, J.W. Thanks for having us back on the show again today. Absolutely, and we are going to go deeper into uh, what's happening internationally, how U.S. ed tech companies could be and should be looking at their expansion into the international markets, and also uh, what's been happening on the ground from 2020 to 2021. So we've got a lot of ground to cover, um, but first, uh, to refresh our audience, Michael, if you could just give a little bit of background on yourself and a little bit of background on global expansion strategies. Sure. So a little bit about myself, uh, born overseas, um, East Africa, lived in several countries throughout the Middle East, um, Europe and Latin America throughout my uh, younger years. Uh, so I've had the international, I guess you could say DNA uh, in me since, since the beginning. Um, throughout my career, I've been working with several companies, predominantly focusing on taking them international. And so GES, what we do today is we're an international, um, international growth and advisory and investment firm uh, for early to mid-stage ed tech companies. So we focus on taking uh, ed tech companies predominantly in the supplemental SaaS space, K-12 SaaS space, uh, to international um, strategic channel partners. Strategic channel partners are uh, private school operators, smallest being 50,000, largest being 1.8 million to uh, English language institutes, publishers, and franchises. That's a lot to, to do, so let's dive right in. Um, from our last conversation in 2020 to what's happening as of today in 2021, um, what continued shifts or what differences have you seen um, really looking at the trajectory right now and also going into the fall internationally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, when we last spoke, the, the going model seemed to be uh, a combination of blended and hybrid learning models with these, these private institutions. It was a combination of in-class instruction, um, brick and you know, face-to-face as, as well as um, virtual instruction. But because a lot of these countries are still struggling with the pandemic, currently experiencing their third, fourth, fifth waves, um, a lot of our existing customers have, have struggled with just continuing to provide um, the education. And so what we've been advising customers is, all right, let's perhaps shift the blended learning model a little bit and go fully virtual, right? So in doing so, um, driving towards a fully virtual uh, model, it, it allows the schools to then sprinkle in brick and mortar face-to-face -face education where, where needed, right? And what we are seeing is a combination of things. One is there's been very little disruption in, in uh, student the student's education experience, the outcomes. But I, I would also say that the schools themselves or these large operators are starting to see the cost savings and benefits to this as well. Now, we, we don't have firm metrics um, that we can report to those, but they are articulating that they are starting to see significant cost savings. And so I'm, I'm hoping that in the future, um, we might be able to elaborate on some of those cost savings. And it's with school operators, 
uh, up and down Latin America um, and uh, Asia and Southeast Asia. That's amazing um, that you're seeing uh, the, the student learning uh, less disrupted maybe than it is here in the States. A lot of talk right now around learning loss and, and overcoming those gaps and, and really a lot of uncovering that we had a lot more learning loss than we were willing to admit before. Um, how is that playing out differently? And of course, there's different regions internationally, but overall, uh, maybe why are you, do you think you're seeing a little less of that uh, internationally? Um, it's, I think, again, it's because these schools have, have um, been able to implement and transition to, to blended learning during the, during the initial year of the pandemic, and they were able to iron out a lot of the challenges that they've had. So they, uh, as a result of that, started to realize that perhaps fully virtual was a better option, but they had the previous year to experiment with what specifically um, would be of benefit to go fully virtual. We thought at, in the initial stages, it was just gonna be a small component, but we're starting to see these school operators drive their entire f curriculum um, full, fully virtual instead of just a, a handful of different courses. Well, and as you say that, it actually makes sense because uh, a lot of US schools that were do, doing some level of virtual, not fully virtual, but some level, were light years ahead of those districts and those schools that weren't. And I would imagine most of the, the international districts you work with and school operators um, were doing some level of virtual and that made it a lot easier for them to fully convert uh, last year whenever things started to, uh, to shut down. Yep. Yep, okay. we, you know, when prior to the pandemic, uh, there, were several there were several components of blended learning model in place. Uh, that, that was accelerated during the pandemic. Um, and now it's, it's uh, been quite easy to go fully virtual. So they've had pre-pandemic, pandemic, pandemic um, and, and now um, that, that sort of trajectory to test what does, what doesn't work and obviously drive towards now what is appearing to be um, and our recommendations then that is to go fully virtual. Wow. And, and I would imagine then being very strategic on when and how they would come back. And um, can you confirm that most of the, the school operators you're working with are not planning in the fall to be fully back, but to continue virtual as maybe the primary mode and then supplementing it with the on-site? Yep, it's almost the flipped classroom, right? Where it's all, you know, all, all at home, online instruction uh, come in for any kind of remedial or hand or face-to-face -face instruction when necessary needed. I love that. That's uh, really interesting. I think there's some parallels. I was just uh, doing a podcast about the EdTech uh, conferences that were all canceled and, and coming back. And now it's a similar uh, strategy where they're going to come back digital with maybe some limited strategic uh, on site, uh, and then you know we'll kind of see how it progresses uh, into the next years. Um, but uh, I think we're seeing that uh, in a lot of areas uh, is this uh, tendency to now kind of move and stick with the fully virtual, take the best of it, and then just replace uh, with those things that uh, are maybe hands on or uh, really valuable to do on site instead of being on site just to be on site, which is kind of the mode we were in before. Yeah, and I, I would say you know. Uh, this this cost savings component that these schools are actually starting to see and experience themselves um, is is having an interesting impact on on just their desire now to continue to drive um, that that virtual, but also add additional 
um, resources, tools, and programs to augment and accelerate and support that that online, that fully virtual environment, which is yet, you know, another opportunity for organizations such as ourselves to bring unique technologies to these schools. Well, and and that brings me to my next question around enrollments. Um, there's some worry um, in K-12 that uh, if they don't offer the virtual, some of the families and the students will look for online only uh, options. It sounds like if, if online is the primary internationally, are they seeing uh, declines? Are they seeing uh, enrollments stay the same? Are they potentially seeing growth? Yeah, great question. Usually with these schools, because they're private schools and you know, there's there's that intersection of academics where academics meet economics. Um, they are they are currently looking at increasing enrollments for the coming school year. Wow, and and are they looking to increase those maybe even beyond their uh, who could attend um, on site? Um, is, is it is it going to potentially expand beyond their their countries? Mm -hmm. Well, so for example, within some of the school operators that are usually like elementary, middle school, or middle school, or high school, or or um, just high school, you're starting to see them um, expand not only in, in additional courses but subject matters, but grade levels as well. So a large school operator that was predominantly a uh, elementary, middle school um, has now just uh, opted to offer a complete online high school program. Uh, they've reached out to us to provide them with the full services and programs uh, to accomplish that. Um, you, you now have English language institutes that are now venturing into other subject matter spaces as well. So you're, you're starting to see it in, in a variety of different areas, as well as geographies. Wow. And this sounds too good to be true. How is this being implemented on the educator side, on the instructor side? Um, what kind of professional development are they doing that is uh, pre preparing them to be able to deliver online, it sounds like, at a high level? Um, because, again, that's a, an area that we're still working uh, tirelessly on here uh, domestically. Um, how does that work, and, and what does the future of PD and training look like for international educators? Great question. So, you know, one of, one of the... One of the um, responsible roles and responsibilities that we take here at GES is that when we bring these companies on board uh, and we take them to the global markets, we make sure that they have the entire suite of professional development training that they can make available to these schools. So when we approach these schools, we approach them with the manner, with the objective of saying, look, you have an entire program that we can make available to your student body, um, need not worry about the professional development, um, we can take care of that. Uh, there's tremendous resources inside the countries themselves um, that we can, we can tap into. But for the most part, a lot of the uh, professional development and training takes place um, from the actual companies that, that we work with. And, and that, a lot of that is, is coming, its source is coming from the United States. But uh, in countries where there's perhaps the need for a local presence, we have a pool of, of people that we can tap into as we do so now. Wow. So, so now you've probably got a lot of our listeners turning their heads, uh, especially our listeners that are uh, in the ed tech uh, publishing space. Um, let's kind of recap for them. Uh, what would be the next steps if they were interested in pursuing some of these uh, international markets? Uh, how would they go about selecting which markets and uh, what would be the potential opportunity for them at this point? It sounds like it's probably still a really good time um, with the infrastructure that that is set up around the world. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these a lot of these school operators are are are, are continuing to look for ways to you know 
support their existing curriculum. So we tend to focus quite a bit on K-12 SAS or PASS-based um, supplemental programs, right? Uh, in, in doing so, uh, you, you're able to take these programs to these, these large school operators or these strategic channel partners um, and, and um, not have to uh, receive or apply for government you know, approval of sorts. Um, and, and so I would say for, for companies that are interested in expanding globally, I would say um, there, needs to be, there, need, there needs to be the mindset that unlike in years past, that your content has to be localized and translated to the foreign language and absorb all sorts of costs. That is not the case. Programs in their existing format um, can be made available to these schools with very nominal localization. And if there's any, it's done through the strategic channel partner that we bring on board in the, in the local country, right? Uh, I would say what, what a lot of these, these organizations need to be prepared for is, is the rapid increase in scale of student enrollments that they will experience within their first 12 to, well, 12 to 24 months. Um, you know, a lot, lot of companies aren't prepared for that. Uh, they, they say they're prepared for that, um, and when the enrollments start to come in, we start to experience perhaps some hiccups, um, perhaps load uh, related issues with the platform. So companies really need to be prepared for that. Yeah, because this is not a school by school uh, model like you would see in the US, right? This is system by system, um, but you should have a pretty good idea um, before uh, a system would want to implement your, uh, your SAS, your past programs, uh, that you'd have a little runway there to, to build up the load balancing, things like that. Yep. Perfect. And what is kind of a typical lead time uh, or sales cycle as far as uh, a system saying we want to get started um, you know, tomorrow and then implementing in the fall? Or what does that uh, typically look like? So a lot of these international school operators, their start dates are, are in February, right? So you almost have to start talking to them in the late Q1, Q2, Q3 timeframe uh, so that they can start to make their decisions, uh, make their commitments um, because they, they basically go on vacation, you know, uh, October, November timeframe. They sort of come back in January, students start to enroll in February. So you have to, you have to uh, front end that with a, at least a good six to eight months of just introducing the program. The introducing of the program is the easy part. Right. If if the school if the school directors can see the benefits and the economics of the program, um, that that's the easy part. It's really it's really getting the staff at the school acquainted with the program, implementing the appropriate appropriate professional development and training, and then obviously marketing the program to the parent and student body. Right. Um, and that's all very easily done with the strategic channel partners that that we work with in in each individual country. Um, so, um, again, usually six to eight months of, of introduction, preparation, preparation, professional development training um, with, you know, the balance of the three months sort of looking at enrollments, getting the enrollments in, getting the students into the platform um, so that they can start up in late January, early February. Well, and in, in the U.S., a lot of districts, a lot of schools have a lot of programs um, because they can buy all year, they can buy teacher by teacher, building by building, almost overwhelming uh, for a lot of educators to know what's what. Um, it feels like in this conversation that the international uh, operators are 
a little more uh, targeted, finite number of systems that maybe makes it a little easier to train the educators on, here's what we have and we're going to use it. Um, is that another benefit, um, I guess, to going international is that, um, of course, there's always continued sales and marketing once uh, someone adopts because you want to make sure that they implement with fidelity and that the students are uh, getting the value. Uh, but it seems like in some ways that might actually be easier in this uh, international context. Yeah, I mean, look, a lot of these international school operators have their own proprietary systems, right? They have their own proprietary content. They have their own proprietary, uh, proprietary LMS. So um, one of the unique benefits that we have is that we have the ability when we approach these schools is to not sell the solution as an add-on where we then in turn have to market and sell the program to the parents, right? Many times um, the, the schools themselves will actually embed embed the program in their existing LMS and make it available to, to the parents or the, or the students, right? So there's not, you don't have that additional upsell and cost of acquisition to have to deal with. It's already done so when the school decides to uh, integrate it into their platform. That's the optimum way, right? Because then again, without sounding uh, you know, too capitalistic, you get mass wide adoption of the student body right away, right? Absolutely, and really, that's the most effective programs um, when they're they're all using the same thing. They're using it properly. Uh, I feel like sometimes too many choices can can lead to none of them being fully implemented and and make it a little more difficult. So that's great. As far as um, safety, security of the the IP, things like that, um, is that um, a real issue in some regions in some countries, or how do you guys uh, provide that kind of safety and security? Yeah, for the most part, everything resides here on local service, right? Uh, we, ha we have had a couple large deployments with some government institutions where there was a requirement to have it uh, hosted locally. So, uh, you know, in those situations, you really have to look at, at, at the, the platform um, and really provide a local version that doesn't um, give, give anybody with malicious intent full access to the platform. Right or to the content, right? You make you make the specific application available um, locally, hosted locally, and you know you, you're able to mitigate any kind of risks there as well. That's great. I know that is maybe a misconception that uh, if they put it out there internationally, that they're at high risk. And and just to confirm, you're saying there there that's no no longer the case, or maybe never really was the case. That's uh, that is a misconception. Yeah. Perfect. Um, what else, uh, what other advice would you have uh, for um, companies that are um, interested but, but maybe haven't dipped their toe in or gone full into international? What, what are the biggest benefits to uh, making this uh, a part of their go-to-market strategy? Um, I, I would say from the international perspective, JW, there's, there's tremendous potential. Sure, there's challenges, there's hiccups, there's sales cycles, but in, in, in the in, in the private space, specifically where we work with these large private school operators, um, they're all for profit, right? So they're, they're looking at two components, right? Optimum student outcomes and the academic and, and um, the economics. Again, I, I constantly preach, you know, there's that intersection of academics uh, where academics meet economics. Um, and, and they look at they look at that. So when you when you have these conversations with these international school operators, they're they're looking at it from both perspectives. So how does that translate to, you know, companies here in the United States? Well, your, your conversations are going to obviously evolve around 
optimizing student outcomes, and, and what are the economics? Two components that these US companies or internet, any international company have full control over, right? And it's, it's not as if, or as we discussed earlier, there has to be a tremendous cost associated with localizing these content. You can most of the time take them as they currently are uh, into these countries and achieve tremendous uh, buy-in. Not only does it achieve tremendous buy-in, but you, you capture tremendous scale and retention year, year after year after year. So unlike in some other educational institutions where you have to continuously go back year after year after year to get buy-in, which means you, your cost of acquisition continues year after year after year, it doesn't so in, with a lot of these international um, strategic channel partners. Your cost of acquisition is usually in year one. Uh, we use strategic channel partners that are on staff, which minimizes that. And you, you capture again, year over year retention and scale with a very nominal um, cost of acquisition. And of course, we focus a lot today on the, the school operators, the private systems, the for-profits, um, which is one of, you know, I think last time we talked about three or four different segments of the international market. Um, but then do you also see once you are in for a year or two um, that that expansion into, you know, whether the government, uh, the public education in certain countries, um, different things? Yeah, great question. Um, when we when we take technologies into countries, we make sure that we do a good enough job to to educate the entire education community. Sure, our market entry in the initial stages is through the for profit private sector. Um, but it's, it's within short order that we start to uh, receive inquiries from uh, the public sector as well as local MOEs, ministries of education to perhaps make that same content uh, available to um, you know, those, those student populations. And it's easily doable, right? Um, you don't make the full offering available, which then costs uh, significantly not more. We know that these ministries of education have very limited budgets. Um, and so um, when you look at it from a country, overall country perspective, going in, capturing, uh, you know, the, the for-profit uh, sector, uh, and then subsequently making the platform available uh, to the, you know, the, the ministries of education, other segments where there's price sensitivity, overall, the, the country strategy um, is a win-win for both, both parties. I love it. All right. We'll end uh, this episode the same way we did last time, but with a new story. Um, and we always like to end with a story of success. Um, and so if you have uh, something maybe from uh, later in 2020 or even from this spring, um, uh, a story could be with a, a school operator or with the company you're working with on how they have, have successfully navigated uh, this uh, you know, expansion inter international. Yeah, so uh, good question. Um, uh, a recent uh, success story that that we're midway through is uh, one of one of the uh, school operators that we've been working with has seen such uh, benefits both from the student outcomes but also from the economics perspective that they have opted to make the appropriate financial resources available to localize the content and make it available for the public school system. And, and that to us is a win-win situation because it pushes off that, that expense from the company to a, a local, uh, local representative, in this case, the school operator. Um, and, and again, we are now able to make, the, make that platform available to you know, the, the public school system. I love it. It's always interesting 
to have you on and, and to learn about, to get out of my uh, bubble here in the, the U.S. And, and learn more about the international markets. We are certainly going to have you on again later this year, as I'm sure things will continue to evolve and change. So, Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, JW. It's always been a pleasure. And to my audience, thank you again for joining this episode. Be sure to check out past episodes on our website, on all the channels that you watch and listen to our show. And uh, we'll see you on a future episode soon. Thanks again, and always, always keep learning.